0: You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. have a Bible. We're going to be in the book of Galatians. Um, if you have a device, you can make your way there as well. Uh, I want to catch us up because we're getting um, to the midway point of, of our journey thus far. Um, and what I hope you've really enjoyed, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed preaching through this book. Um, it's been super nourishing to my soul. And I hope you can say the same. Um, man, shoot, where do we start? Since the beginning of the year, we've been in this sermon series titled The Gospel Period. So if you're a guest for us, um, I'm gonna, I am going gonna—I preach all my sermons as standalone, so, so I'm going to catch you up. But uh, if you want to look back and, and listen back, um, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find uh, this sermon series um, and, and all the sermons up until this point. But we've been looking at <clears throat> the book of Galatians, okay? in the book of Galatians, we picked it because as a young church plant, it's a book that that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young church plant, or, or a number of them, rather. Um, and the Apostle Paul planted these churches in this region known as Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, as he went up into the uh, the Roman Empire and shared the gospel. Uh, he, he shared the gospel. He made disciples. He, wrote, he, you know, appointed local elders to lead those churches. And then years later, he's writing this book to call them back to the gospel that they've gotten away from. Okay, that's why we call it the gospel period. Um, because the reality is if we add to the gospel, then we adulterate it. Okay. Um, the gospel, as Christians talk about it, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's, there's actually lots of gospels. If you read just uh, letters from antiquity, you can read different gospels. Julius Caesar has a gospel. It's a proclamation uh, of a of a new sovereign's reign and then the benefits that will come from those who live under that reign. So there's, there's a gospel of Julius Caesar, okay? Uh, it's like a campaign promise, if you will, okay? It's like, I'm going to not just be the president for the next four years, but I'm going to change all these horrific things about every aspect of your life. Yeah, right. Um, so... <laughs> I mean, shoot, if you read the Gospel of Caesar, right, politicians have been over-promising and under for a long time. Um, both sides of the aisle. But we're back. King Jesus doesn't overpromise and under right? And so the Gospel, as Christians understand it, is heaven's proclamation to earth that the king is going to come and his kingdom is going to be established. And when it is, things are going to change, right the the hell that is on earth needs a little bit of heaven in it and so this is the hope of the, of the christian gospel is that that christ has come in bodily form he has established his kingdom and now he's advancing that kingdom by the power of his spirit through the work of his people and his church even today and this is what we're we're tied up and wrapped up into uh, this is the story we we get to add to uh, as we plant embassy church and it's a beautiful thing now you've heard me say this a few times, but the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. So if you're new to Christianity, if you're just sitting on the back row and you're coming, you're you're curious, you're asking questions. Maybe a friend invites you, and you're just going, "Man, I'll listen, right? I'll, I'll check it out." The gospel isn't the the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z. It's the core of Christianity that we never get away from. Okay. Um, to give you uh, an analogy, uh, the gospel at at, at one pointer in one way is is kind of like a, a little child sitting on the seashore and just playing in in the waves as it kind of laps up you know you have the, the the imagery in your mind, but it's not just that right because the gospel's the whole of the ocean and so if the gospel to you is just the shallows of sitting along the seashore and picking up little sand dollars and you miss the fact that like it's so deep and so vast and so wide that that all the mariners who have ever lived have never fully explored its vastness, right? Then, then then you think you can have a hold on the gospel, but but you can't. And you, you'll move past it. You'll be tempted to move on, okay? And so the gospel is both shallow and deep at the same time. It's a, it's a really fascinating, beautiful thing. Um, or, or to give you another uh, analogy or imagery, and we've used this before, um, it's like a gym that that... You want to pick up and you want to hold in your hand. But if you think it's only a gem that you can hold, you want to move on from it. You want to move beyond it. But the gospel is meant for us to, to hold, for you to grasp, okay? And I want you to be able to sit in here and, and hear me preach and, and open the word and it'd be super accessible. And you go, yeah, I get that. But I don't want you to feel like you can you can only hold it. I want you to feel like, man, I need to hold this up to the light and just wonder at it and stare at every little facet and never, ever just get tired uh, of looking at the gospel and understanding it's just deep implications for my life, right? So if you're a Christian, um, you shouldn't just hold on to the gospel. You should hold it up, okay, um, and, and never move beyond it. This is where Paul's going time and time again in Galatians, where he's going, okay, you, you're, you grasp the gospel as little children sitting in the shallows of the sea, you know, and playing along the, the waves as they lap the seashore, but you've forgotten that it's, it's a deep blue ocean out there. Or you've, you've grasped the gospel if, if, as if it's a gem and you've, you've held on to it, but you forgot to hold it up, okay, and just stare and wonder at the facets of it. Now, where we're going today is really the pinnacle of, of the, the gospel and its implications, okay? Um, this is what J.I. Packard would say um, is, is really the, the highlight of, of this, this core of the Christian message. And we're going to talk about adoption, Okay? This theological idea of adoption, all right? Um, and I'm going to read for us real quick in, in, in verse 26, okay? Because um, I want to kind of give us some context before we jump into our passage. Um, but this is what we kind of ended with last week and, and what we're moving into. And so, actually, before I do that, let me read a quote from John Stott. John um, and, and this will frame up where we're about to go. This is what John Stott says about where we were last week, because we looked at the relationship between the Christian and the law, the Christian and just rules, okay? Um, and he says this, God intended the law to reveal sin. If you are here last week, you know this, um, hopefully you do, um, it, it's coming back, but if not, um, listen in. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ, Okay? Satan uses the law to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. Okay? So track with me. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage, there is no escape. Okay? So last we looked at the purpose of the law in relation to the promise, okay? And I love that line there that God uses the law as a stepping stone to to ultimately push us to Christ, to show us that, that we're sinners in need of a savior. So the Christian doesn't look to the law for his justification, the Christian looks at the law, the law acts as a mirror of reflecting back on them and going, man, I actually am more wicked than I dare to imagine. But then this, the Christian is the one who's, who's heard the gospel that though I'm w- more wicked than I dare to imagine, at the same time because of the cross, I'm more loved than I dare to dream. So we don't stay in that cul-de-sac of shame and guilt and condemnation, right? But we, we step onto that stepping stone to, to freedom in Christ, all right? So that's where I want to pick up and. Galatians 3, so if you have your Bible, your Bible app, look at Galatians 3, verse 26. This is the last verse in that chunk that we looked, up, looked at last week, and it's going to give us um, these, these key prepositions that we were talking about last week, okay? Um, so let me read for us. It says, through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And what's key here is that phrase, in Christ Jesus, Again, last week we looked at two prepositions, really two ideas that divide every person in this room and every person outside of this room. You're either somebody who is living under the law or somebody who is living in Christ, right? So you're either living under the law, the whole world lives under the law. We live under God's just judgment and we all fall far short of God's holy standard and that is just crushing Okay, and so you either minimize the law and you go, man, like God ain't that holy. His law's not that big of a deal. And so I'm just gonna live my life and not even kind of stare at it, right? I I don't wanna know I got cancer. Don't tell me doc, you know, or you're just gonna incessantly stare at those test results. You're gonna stare at the law and what's true. And it's gonna lead you to either religious performance and you can become a really prideful person or it's gonna lead you to a lot of despair and you're gonna struggle with a lot of shame and condemnation. Right, That's the burden of living under the law, okay? Key prepositional phrase there. But for the Christian, we are those who are in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christian, in Christ, little Christ. But there's a theological reality to that, a spiritual reality to that, that it's not just phrasing. And that's what I want to break, it, break down today because that's the key to um, understanding just the, the beauty, the wonder of, of adoption and what we're going to look at, okay? So we as Christians are adopted into the family of God. And again, J.I. Packard um, uses this, calling it. Um, I'm trying to remember his phrasing, I, I want to say it says high, highest privilege. He says justification is the first privilege of the gospel, but the highest is adoption. And if you're a Christian, what I want this morning to do is just to warm your hearts. Like I want it to to give you a degree of security and assurance and confidence and intimacy with the God that made you that you've never had before, okay? If you're not a Christian, I want you to listen in and, and, and see the things that God affords you through the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can't earn, you can't pay back, you can just receive by grace. But if you're a Christian, this, this truth of our adoption, in the family of God, this truth of us being sons and daughters of a heavenly father should warm your heart more than anything, and it should provide assurance of salvation, okay? Your confidence isn't in how you prayed the prayer or how you, you, you got perfectly baptized or anything like that. It's in the reality of what Christ has done and the promises of God. So let me read for us Galatians three twenty seven through 4, 6, and I can break it down uh, verse by verse. <clears throat> So this is Galatians 3, 27 through 4, 6, okay? So what does it mean to be in Christ? There's three big implications for this. 3, For those who are baptized into Christ, you're gonna see this phrasing a lot, into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs of according to the promise. I'm just asking to read uh, through verse 7. Paul then says this. He uses an analogy here. Now, as I say, as long as an heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the elements of the world. But when time came to completion... God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son crying into our into our hearts, crying, Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. Again, J.I. Packer's phrasing the highest privilege of the gospel, our adoption. Okay? In Christ. But I want to break down these first couple verses because uh, ultimately, when we become Christians, what, what God's doing is rewriting the story of your life. He's giving you completely new answers to those big human questions of origin, purpose, destiny. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? He's going to reorient the vertical relationship between you and Him, the horizontal relationship between you and your fellow humanity, and then ultimately, the end hope of your life. And we see that in all these three. Yes, all of that in all three uh, of these verses. Look at the imagery here. It says, for those of you who are baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. We get this imagery of baptism and this imagery of being clothed. Now, <clears throat> if you read the New Testament over and over and over again, you'll just see some consistent themes. You know, that Paul, Paul just says pretty much the same stuff, kind of repackaged to church after church after church. And so Romans chapter 6 is kind of your quintessential passage on baptism and what that imagery uh, is really meant to communicate. And actually on Easter Sunday we'll celebrate baptisms here. So if you've just become a believer or you've never been baptized as a believer, um, we invite you to do that. But, but out, baptism uh, here at Embassy and what I think the scriptures point to is it's an outward, rea- uh, an outward communication of an inward reality. Okay? So Romans 6 says it this way. We were buried, that being Christians, we were buried with Jesus by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. So the Christian understands baptism doesn't save us. It's Christ that saves us. But baptism is something that. Always follows belief in the New Testament, and it's something that we do as a way to unite not just to Christ's life but his death. And so, Paul's drawing on this imagery, he's going, Okay, you, Christian, if you've been baptized into Christ, if your old self is dead with him in the graves and your new self is risen with him, you've been clothed with him, okay? So, just really, really rich imagery. Uh, My parents are actually here this weekend. Uh, I had the, the privilege of actually being baptized by my dad as a senior in high school. And, and so the, the imagery is almost this. If you go back to Mandeville, Louisiana, actually like Covington or Bedico or some place outside the town, um, you can go find old critter in that family pool that was buried there. That's not the same person. I'm not the same person I, I, today that I was then. Right, the, the, the Christian's understanding of his identity is my old self is dead, the things I used to do, the things I used to desire, the things I used to long for. Everything that sin promised that would give me life brought me death. All of that old stuff, that is dead and buried. And I have been transformed into this new creation. And my identity has been changed. Right? There's a, a union with Christ. There's an understanding of that. And, and baptism is a, an outward picture of, of what's going on spiritually in the life of a believer. It's powerful imagery. Now the second imagery that, that Paul uses here is, is if you've been buried with Christ, there's death imagery. There's life imagery. You've been clothed with him. Okay? And so if you're not from here, you're not from the Midwest, we've got Southerners in here, some people that moved up from Louisiana to help plant this church. Midwest winter is terrible. Right? It's just terrible. It's not as bad as Iowa. This is like God kind of like put me through like two years of a SEAL team hell week, but it wasn't a week. It was two years in Iowa, like where I just experienced these horrendous winters. And the only familiarity that I had with them was I somehow or, or one day in the past, like watched one YouTube video of like a Russian Siberia winter. And what I got to experience in the United States of America was somehow the same thing. Right? I was like, I, 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 I don't know what this is like, but I have an idea because I saw it on YouTube, but the guy was Russian. And somehow I'm in Iowa, and I'm experiencing negative 41 degrees. Like, it, that's just terrible, okay? So you buy these jackets. If you go to Iowa, all the, all the ladies wear them, right? It's just like, it doesn't even make sense to wear layers because you don't even hang out outside. You just go from your house to your car to a building. So you just need something, like almost like you're a football player, to put over you while you're sitting on the sidelines, Like that's the imagery Paul's using here. You you have been clothed with Christ. You are you are in him. You are wearing him. Like it's not Gucci, it's Christ. Like you are in him, okay? And there's something intimate about that, right? Your clothes are are touching your skin. You're putting on a uniform. Okay? And and it should change the way you live. You have a different identity. You're not just Chris Cook, you're you're an IU Hoosier now right? You're a linebacker, whatever it is. You're, you're part of the team, okay? So our vertical relationship is changed when we are in Christ, okay? And, and the, expo- the, the, the expose of this is Colossians 3 where Paul uses the same imagery to put off our old self and to put on our new self, okay? Um, but then it goes on, right? So it doesn't just change our vertical relationship. Being in Christ, the reality of the gospel changes our horizontal relationships. Look at verse 28. It says there's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. Since we're all one in Christ, okay? Now this is God moving from transforming the individual Christian to transforming communities. And then ultimately societies, Okay. Uh, where it moves out. Like you can't have this, this transformation in your relationship with God and it not change the way you interact with the world around you. And what do we know about the world? We're divided. We're broken. How are we divided? In the same way it was in antiquity, in the ancient times, we're divided by socioeconomic class, we're divided by culture, we're divided by gender, right? These same divides that. that stratify human society and, and, and in our pride cause us to look down at other people and go we're better than you or cause other people to look down at us and go we're better than you, the reality of the gospel and its implications come in and go if you're in Christ then you're all one. And so diversity doesn't get eliminated, right? Paul's not saying that there's not male or female or there's not different strata of, of socioeconomics, okay? That there's not beauty and diversity of of Ethnic or cultural differences. What he's saying is there shouldn't be any, any, any divide that separates um, people who are in Christ. That separates that separates Christians. Okay, that these distinctions exist, but they shouldn't matter. Makes sense. They shouldn't divide. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say that somehow, some way, um, by someone's good graces, you get a ticket to fly from here somewhere transcontinental, okay? So free tickets all around, right? 2300 bucks, whatever it is to fly, which is expensive right now for some reason. Um, <clears throat> and you get on that plane, what do you expect to see? You expect to see different cabins. So I don't know if you're a first class person, a business class person, or if you're like me, you're like a middle seat economy class person because you wait too long to check in and you're just like, oh, 14 hours, this is gonna be terrible. You know, and somehow you're in between, like, two moms with babies, you know, for a 14-hour flight. And it's like, this is a joy. Um, I love kids. Um, In a sense, though, when we're in Christ, it would be like having a transcontinental flight. You get a free ticket, and there is no class divide. Okay? There is no first class, business class, economy class. You're not somebody sitting in first class going, man, better than you. Right, You know, and and, and maybe if you've never sat in first class, which actually I haven't, um, you kind of feel if you're in economy class, you kind of walk on the plane and you're like, man, why do they got to put those people on there first? You know, they should go from back to front, right? But you walk on the plane and they already got their wine and they're sipping it and you're just like, I can't wait for my ginger ale, you know, and I'm just going like all the way back by the bathroom for about 14 hours, okay? In Christ, there is no class divide, Okay, We are all given a free ticket and what matters isn't what we're wearing or what our luggage looks like or anything like that. What matters is the quality of the plane getting us from point A to point B and that's Christ who's bringing us out from under the law and its judgment and bringing us into the goodness and the grace of God and being adopted into his family. Okay, so the, so the gospel changes our vertical relationship, our horizontal relationship, and ultimately it changes our future hope. Look at this last thing, 29. If you belong to Christ, then your Abraham's seed heirs according to promise. And this is so cool, okay? What Paul is saying is <clears throat> what is true of Christ is true of the Christian. Christ is Abraham's seed. And if you are united in him by faith, then the promises that are afforded to him are afforded to you. You need to grasp the reality of that, the implications of that. The riches of heaven are available to the Christian because they are united in Christ through faith. This is why Paul's warning to the Galatians of them adding to the gospel is so stern. Because he's going, in adding the gospel, you're getting away from the gospel and you're getting away from Christ. So everything falls apart. Okay? Now, this is the chunk that I want to I wanna look at uh, in verses 4, 1-7. through seven. Okay? And I want you to drop down to, um, to verse 4. Okay? And I'm going to read it again because this is key. Maybe your translation says this. I grew up reading NKJV and I think it said it this way. It says, when the fullness of time had come... And I love that. When the fullness of time had come, and I can break down what that could or couldn't mean, but but here's what's important. God sent his son at the right time. Not not too soon, not too late. His son was born of a woman. He was human, fully fully human, fully God, fully man. He was born under the law, okay, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay. Now, I'm going to read this quote because John Sott lays this out really well, better than I could. And he clarifies this. He says, so the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ are what uniquely qualify him to be man's redeemer. All right, so track with this. The divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ are what uniquely qualify him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed man. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed man for God or made them sons of God. You see the richness of this reality of who you're in if you're a Christian? You're in someone who at the right time, at the right place in God's providence, came, was born, As you and me, as a son of Adam in a sense, as a man, to redeem men, he was born under the law and lived his life perfectly. The only righteous person, the only person good enough, yet he was also fully son of God. And so his sacrifice, his death on the cross and his resurrection is the only way by which we can be made right with God the Father. This is the exclusivity of the Christian claim. Because there's only one Christ. There's only one way. Now, this is what I want us to grasp, and this is what's so key about this whole passage. I've been saying we're going to talk about adoption, okay? I want you to see what the language is here in verse 5, okay? There's two key words I want you to key in on. Again, if you got a Bible, I just want you to see them. It says, he came to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's what's true. A lot of Christians get the first part. They get the redemption part, but they don't follow up with the so that. They don't get the adoption part. This is what I mean. The imagery Paul's using here has to bring us back to a a Greco-Roman marketplace. Okay, redemption is slave language. Okay, the idea is this. That that we are indentured servants, we are slaves to sin. That we have sold ourselves to it and, and it it has a hold on us. We have a debt to it. Okay? So we are in the, the Greco Roman slave market and and there's there's a there's a debt on our account. The gospel comes in and Christ pays that debt free of charge absolute grace that's that language of redemption of taking a slave and setting him free you tracking with me that's a common understanding of the average christian on the street what the average christian on the street does is stops there doesn't go to the so that because it doesn't just stay at redemption. Okay. Look at verse 5. To redeem those under the law. So being in Christ takes us from under the law to in Christ. Okay. Um, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay. So <clears throat> this is the imagery I want to give you. We go from Greco-Roman market where you and I are, are, are slaves to sin and it has a debt on us. Okay. To a Greco-Roman household where the slave is now brought into the family, given a seat at the table, and made an heir. Given an inheritance. Okay, maybe to use some more common day language, uh, I, I want you to picture someone holding up a mugshot, or someone in a mugshot holding up a sign. I don't even know if they call those signs anything, but just like a little plaque board or whatever that is, right? And maybe just picture yourself. You're holding that sign. there's a debt that you owe to society. Okay? That's one image. Now, I want you to picture yourself over here in this other image, not holding up a sign, it's not a mugshot. You're on the front page of the Sunday edition of the New York Times, and you're holding up the Congressional Medal of Honor. What the gospel does is it says it takes you from this mugshot to this front page. It takes you from being a slave to your sin and owing a debt to not just being freed from that debt, but being adopted into the family of God and be given the highest honor imaginable. For the Christian, what is true of Christ is true of the Christian. This is what's so audacious about the gospel. That the, the, the things that Christ rightly deserves, you and I get because we're in him. The riches of heaven that Christ rightly deserves because he actually lived that righteous life, because he's actually a son of God. The Christian who's adopted in the family and, and, and gets to be an heir gets access to all of that. The riches of heaven, the riches of the kingdom and we did nothing to afford it. Do you see the deep implications of this? What I want us to see in this passage is what the Father is is laying out that is the Son's purpose. There's an objective truth, okay? There's something that happened externally 2,000 years ago in human history in the fullness of time, and nothing you did can change that. What kind of security would you have, would I have? What kind of assurance would you have or I have? Okay, so there's, a, there's an externality to it. There's an objectivity to it. But it doesn't stop there, okay? Because then it transitions, and the Christian life isn't just about believing truth, it's about experiencing truth, So it moves from objective to subjective. It moves from external to internal because now this whole passage moves from talking about the son to talking about the spirit. So not only do I want you to, to hear that you're an adopted child of God if you are in Christ, if through faith you are in Christ. These are all these things that are true about you. But I want you to experience the reality of that truth. Day in and day out. This is how Paul explains it or he speaks to it. Look back at our passage. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, God has made you an heir. What's true is is God doesn't want you just to, to understand the reality of what he's done for you. He wants you to experience it day in and day out. He wants the reality that you are a son or a daughter to be just absolutely melting to your heart. Do you understand how crazy this is that, that we can talk to God and call out and cry out as if he is Abba Father? Let me use some, some imagery here um, of, of the sacredness of a marriage bed. And don't worry, I'm not going to get weird. Um, my king-size bed which I love um, because I used to have a queen and we had three kids and that didn't work um, because they would kind of like just kind of pitter-patter their way into our bed. And then before I knew it, it's like 4 a.m. And I'm like, I'm going to sleep in the kid's bed. And I would just leave and like Allison and my kids would sleep in my bed and I'd sleep in their bed because I'm like five people cannot fit in this. So um, we have a king now. Um, And that's a sacred place for a husband and a wife, right? It's, it's, It's a marriage bed. But as sacred as it is, my little children, especially my little Emma, has the audacity to climb up in it. Think about it, okay? My three-and-a-half-year-old, f- doesn't fail, um, around 4 a.m., you know, kind of moves our, we have sliding and pocket doors, slides it open, and she's got her hair, like, pulled over her face. She does this weird thing. Uh, she makes, make, makes a mustache Uh, with her long hair over her Noonie, and she's got, like, puppy, and she's got a blanket, and she just, like, slowly comes up to her bed, and then she climbs on top of me, knees and elbows, and just, like, oh, And she just wiggles her way in between me and Allie and cuddles up and falls asleep. The audacity of this three-and-a-half-year-old. Am I right? Like, this is a sacred space. If any of you ever did that, ever, there would be pain. There would be pain. I would be doling out pain. No one, no one gets to do that. She doesn't think twice. Why? Because I'm Abba Father. I'm Papa. I'm Daddy. Do you understand the audacity of, of the gospel here and what it's saying, the implications of it in your relationship with God? God. That that God doesn't want you to think twice. God doesn't want you to to wonder if you'd be welcome or accepted. That that you get access, like intimate access to God. The confidence, the security, the assurance. And so when I talk to Christians who are just so insecure about their faith, one is because their faith either isn't in Christ and they're not Christians or it is in Christ, but they've never understood the full ramifications or the full breadth of the gospel. They just stopped it at at justification. And it's, it's the adoption that I want to lead them into and go, don't you understand that you're in the family and nothing you did brought you into it and nothing you're going to do is going to take you out of it. That if you're in Christ, you are a son or a daughter and it's a beautifully intimate thing. And man, when that starts to sink in, what it starts to change is your prayer life. Because you're not talking to God like some genie that's just going to give you some stuff and, and maybe be a means to a greater end because you don't really want him. You just want the stuff he can give you. You're talking to Abba. You're talking to Papa. And communion with him, it's, it's right and it's good and it, it's sweet. So there's this objective reality of the son that Paul wants to see, but this objective reality of the spirit that he wants us to see that, that, that adoption brings about. And, and I, man, I just, I want it to, to sink in that we have full rights of, of heavenly inheritance. I, 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 let me just sum it up this way. Um, and, and I know I'm, uh, I say this every week. I'm five minutes over. I'm sorry. If you're taking notes... <laughs> We have direct access to the father, all right? Um, Direct access. So famous picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. sitting under his dad's feet in the Oval Office. Y'all have seen this picture? Some of you need to stop acting like your White House interns and go sit at the feet of your father. You're not a White House intern if you're in Christ. You're sitting at the feet of God, Abba, Father, okay? We have equal standing with one another. Man, adoption changes this. where We can't stratify ourselves out in the family of God like the world does. Some of you need to stop treating other people like you're sitting in first class and they're sitting in economic class or economy class. Or some of you need to stop treating other people like you're the one sitting in the economy class and they're sitting in first class. If you're in Christ, right, it's level. You see the implications of the adoption? And we have full rights of heavenly inheritance. Man, it's, it's like a lawyer showed up to your house and an attorney and just said, hey, just want to let you know um, you have a, a wealthy uncle that passed away and you have access to this entire estate. And all you actually have to do is, is access it. But it's like, oh, it's too good for me. I, I can't, I can't. We need to stop wondering if we're going to barely make it into heaven. And we need to start using the family vac- vacation home and the family car. Like, I'm not saying be presumptuous, but I am saying be assured, be secure, be confident. I'm going to end with this. If you go into Mark 14, we see Jesus use this language. It's the last time he does. Okay, Mark 14 is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross of Calvary. And this is his prayer, all right? Mark 14, 36. In the garden, night when he is betrayed, this is what he prays. Abba, Father. This is how Jesus talks to God the Father. Abba. Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And after he prayed that prayer, he surrendered his will to the Father's will. The cup is this this ancient image of wrath, okay, that you drink down deep. And so in a sense, what you're getting in the garden It's kind of like God the Father being a waiter that, that, that grabs a wine glass and opens a bottle and pours a little bit out. So before Jesus got to purchase the whole thing, he got to smell it and swirl it and taste it. And he saw how just bitter and rancid it was and he still drank it down deep for you and for me. Right, God didn't surprise him. He wasn't like, oh, the cross is worse than I expected. In the garden, God showed him what it was and he smelled it and he swirled it And he drank it. And the one person that deserved to call God Abba Father, he drank down his wrath for you and for me so that we could call God Abba Father. He divided his inheritance in in, in a sense for you and for me so that we could be invited into the family. These are just the incredible implications of the gospel. That if you and I would just believe it, it would change us. It would change us. It would change our prayer life. It would change our interaction with one another. It would change the world. So my hope, embassy, is that we would actually be a food sharing kind of people. We would be a kind of people that would be that audacious to eat off of our father's plate, to climb into his lap, to go to him throughout the day and talk to him in prayer, knowing that he hears us and knowing that, man, if he would send his son to die for us, man, he's going to give us so much more than that. And we pray for us that we be a people that that understand adoption and live in light of it as sons and daughters. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the incredible promises in it. Thank you for Just the pinnacle of the gospel that is not just our justification, not just our slate being wiped clean, but our adoption. That's Christ's merit being written on our slate. And it's almost too good to be true. And so I pray that you give us the confidence to believe it's true. Because your word says it's true. That in Christ we are heirs. We are sons, we are daughters, we are children of God. No longer slaves, but children. And would that truth change us? Will we engage with you, interact with you? Will we come to you with just confidence and even a degree of audacity? Rightly faith, faith. Not because of what we've done or who we are in ourselves, but but who we're in, Christ. And I pray as that changes us individually, it changes us corporately as a church. And it will change this city and change this world. We love you. We praise you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, who gave up everything for us. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.